This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Foundation. Now, there's obviously a lot going on in the world right now, not least in the the Middle East and in terms of um, foreign affairs, and even on the economic policy space, it's not exactly a quiet phase with you know, still much higher than target inflation. Lots of changes happening to um, guilt rates even over the last few weeks. And those short-term policy challenges are obviously dominating most of the news and most of the discussion. Um, but it's important we don't ignore the long-term questions because in the end everything is the long uh, term and it will arrive whether you want to think about it or not and that's what we're trying to do as part of the Economy 2030 inquiry this long-term two and a half year project between us and the London School of Economics looking at what the UK's economic strategy not its day-to-day economic policy not what should interest rates be today or what should fiscal policy do today but what should be the underlying economic strategy that guides the country hopefully into times that don't look quite as grim as the last 15 years have for living standards, or as we're going to come on to, the public uh, finances. And so today we're publishing a paper, part of that project, which is looking at the macroeconomic framework. How does the UK's macroeconomic framework measure up against the tasks we want it to do and against the sustainability measure? Is it going to be able to do what it needs to do, particularly support the economy in difficult times in downturns? And is it going to be able to do that sustainably over the long term given how it's set up and given what the world is uh, looking like. And one of the authors of that report is James Smith, who's the research director here at the Foundation. He's first of all going to give you a brief overview of what is in that paper. As I say, we will try to get into how does some of the shorter term disturbances going on in the economy interact with these longer term considerations. But the objective today is not just to talk about what is going on right now in markets or what is going on right now in the Bank of England, which is obviously the tempting thing um, to do. To help us not do that, we've then got a great panel. So you're going to hear from Deanne Julius, who um, lots of you will know from years on the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England, having to worry about what the individual short-term policy decisions were. Although in those days it was easy. Uh, anyway, well, we, then it we turned, moved a lot. We moved, yes, <laughs> the, um, uh, exactly. Um, uh, and it does lots of other things as well, including a senior advisor at um, Chatham House. And then you're going to hear from Andy King, who has just recently left the Office of Budget Responsibilities, uh, Budget Responsibility uh, Committee. We can come on to how responsible the budgeting was during Andy's time uh, later. The, um, and is now a specialist partner at Flint Global. And is one of the people who's probably a limited number of people who have spent many, many years thinking and worrying about the UK's uh, fiscal policy. So we've got a good mix of monetary and fiscal um, mix. So that is the plan. As always, you can put your questions for the panel on Slido. So go on and it's hashtag macro framework to do that. And as I say, we'll then have time for a discussion. Right, James, what is in the report? Right, thank you, Torsten. And let me add my welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. So my job is to take you through the paper that we, we published today. I, I should say that was generously funded by the Nuffield Foundation. So thanks to them. Now, there's lots in the paper. So definitely read the paper. I'd like to thank my co-author, Simon Pittaway, who has uh, worked on this and done some amazing work across 
this as well. Now, when you pick up this paper, you'll, you'll be thinking, well, this is all about, as Torsten was saying, challenges for the future for decades ahead. Um, and you might think to yourself, haven't these guys noticed there's a few things going on at the moment? So the left chart shows you that inflation is incredibly high, it's been stubborn in the UK. And what the reaction of policymakers to that has left us with is high short-term interest rates, but also a return to the noughties in terms of where longer-term interest rates have got to as well. And uh, this is really a, a, a sort of a, a kind of seed change and a, a sort of trauma in, in macro policy for the for the here and now. And if I if I sort of bring up our fearless economic leaders here, you can see Andrew Bailey on the right looking very stressed. He's thinking about how long he has to keep rates at very high levels. And Jeremy Hunt on the right, who's really dealing with the implications of those higher interest rates, making it harder for him to deliver tax cuts. It's, it's very difficult, by the way, to find a picture of Jeremy Hunt looking flustered. He is a very unflappable individual, clearly. So, um, so that, that, that we're, we're sort of struggling with the here and now. But the, the fact that we've, we've sort of moved out of this low long-term interest rate world, at least for now, is a good time for us to step back and think about the path we're on. And anyone who tells you that they know exactly what's going to happen to interest rates is either lying or about to make a heck of a lot of money. So either disown them or make them your best friend is my helpful advice on this. But this is the, this is the time for us to think about um, what would happen in different, different interest rate worlds and what sort of path we are, we're actually on. And this is part of our inquiry. We're, we're long-term thinkers here, so that's why, uh, why we're doing what we're doing. And the short version of all this is we just don't think we can continue down the, the road that we're on. So as Torsten hinted at, the, the bad news here, and to, to manage expectations, there's no good news, it's going to be degrees of bad news, um, is that we start from a position where debt has essentially tripled since the financial crisis. We've had these two big ratcheting up of debt uh, during the financial crisis and during the, the pandemic with no progress bringing it down in between. And this is unprecedented in peacetime in more than 300 years of financial data. So straight away you should be worried, but things get worse when you look at the path we're on. Now what we're doing here is basically building on long-term debt sustainability analysis, the type of thing that the OBR is, has been publishing in its uh, helpful fiscal risk report. And what we're doing here is holding fixed assumptions that the OBR make about the long-term sustainable path of the economy, the types of policy that underlies it, and market pricing um, that, that comes along with that. And basically, what we're doing that's different to what the OBR is doing is basically saying, what, what does our sort of current fiscal framework look like if you face the type of um, shocks and uncertainty um, that almost are inevitably going to come along during this period? So this orange line is a relatively benign version of that. And it says, what if we face recessions? What if we get the kind of jumps in debt that we saw at the end of the, of the 20th century. And in that world, um, if you have what the government has, what Labour says it wants uh, to get debt falling, to stabilise debt, 
um, in years outside of recessions, you still get this ratcheting up of debt. So it's heading to 140% of GDP. We're getting interest payments that are heading to levels we've not seen to 70 years. So we would argue this looks incredibly worrying right off the bat. But if we now add in um, the need for, for fiscal policy to fill in for monetary policy, so if we return back to that world where uh, basically interest rates are marooned at the lower bound, we have to uh, do all the stabilisation of the economy when, when thing, bad things happen through fiscal policy, you get an even bigger ratchet. What we've done in this, or in this dotted orange line is basically add what's a standard... Um, interest rate cut and recessions we saw at the end of the 20th century, what does that equate to in terms of jumps in debt? So this is not disasters, this is not a continuation of the crises that we've seen in the 20th century. This is standard recessions of the, of the kind we saw in the 20th century, but with uh, fiscal policy uh, doing much more. And in this world, you would need to run something like a 3% primary surplus to get debt on a sustainably downward trajectory. Now, you'd be doing that outside of recession, so three out of every four years. Just to be clear, we've done this three times in the last 50 years. So this is clearly not happening. It's not feasible. Um, it would involve a sort of situation of permanent austerity to try and deliver that. And you would really be uh, in a very sort of stretched position. So how do you avoid this really sort of terrible outcome? And there's basically two ways to do that. And the first of those, and hopefully I've been very clear, the lower bound is not the place to be. So the first of those is avoid the lower bound at all costs. And that's pretty easy if you're in a world of high interest rates, as the sort of current market pricing suggests. But we think even in that world, you should think about uh, the possibility of moving into negative rate territory. So the Bank of England cut rates to just 0.1% during the, the pandemic, um, but other central banks have gone lower, have gone into negative territory, and we think the Bank of England could do the same and should develop that capability, and it gives you a bit more capacity to deal with shocks in future. But the problem comes if you return to a low interest rate world. And what this chart just does is basically look at the distribution of interest rates we've seen over the last 40 years or so and centre it um, in a sort of low interest rate world. So we've done this in a way that takes us back to the sort of pre-pandemic uh, world, not the ultra, ultra low rates of the, of the pandemic. And in this world, roughly 10% of the... Uh, distribution is below zero. So this is like hitting the lower bound once every decade. Now you might stay there, but you're, you're basically coming up against that lower bound more or less every time you, you have a shock. So that's definitely something we'd want to avoid. In that world, we think you should think about um, increasing the inflation target, and we suggest increasing it to 3%. Now, this is a big step. Uh, we definitely don't want to make light of it. And it's definitely one you would want to do in a low interest rate world. And you really have to think about the costs of doing that. Now, there's a lot in the paper about those costs, but this chart just shows one element of those costs, which is 
something that economists worry about that we'd get too much attention on inflation. We'd, we'd ha everyone would be thinking about inflation and not thinking about how to increase productivity to do product and productive things. And it looks like based on um, uh, econometric work, looking at Google searches, you do see that sort of behavior, but it kicks in above 5.5%, not around the 3% level. So we go through a range of costs in the paper, and we think they're, they're not huge. But the um, key cost in all this is basically the reputational cost for the framework, and that has to be managed extremely carefully. So on the right of this chart, we basically set out what robust policy would look like. So you don't know the state of the world you're in, so you start by giving yourself space uh, uh, to cut rates to, to negative territory. You don't know where you're headed, so you, you think about preparing the ground for possibly raising the inflation target. You would want to get back to 2% first, because not doing that would undermine the credibility of any target. And you want to announce a review. You want to make this about what is the right inflation target, not about you know, any particular predetermined outcome. And you want to coordinate with other countries. So if you don't, uh, and the UK goes it alone, there's a risk that you get a drift down in the exchange rate, which is something we should, uh, we should definitely worry about. And the prize for achieving this, so what, what we've done in this chart here is we've taken the distribution of interest rates We've moved it to the right by raising the inflation target. and We've moved the lower bound to the left by uh, cut it, allowing us to cut rates to minus 1%. And that turns hitting the lower bound from a once in a decade phenomenon to a once in a century based on the types of um, uh, experience that we've had over the, over, uh, the sort of recent years. So um, we think there's, you know, there's a big step. Um, we could uh, take it, we should do it very, very carefully. The other thing we should do here is run smarter fiscal policy. And that's really important because it basically cuts down on that ratcheting up in of debt that I showed you. Again, uh, really uh, recommend looking at the paper. There's lots in there that goes through this in more detail. But this is the kind of thing that we're worried about. So this shows the energy price guarantee and the energy bill support scheme. So two elements of the support during the cost of living crisis. And, you, and it shows where that impact went in, in absolute terms across uh, the income distribution. You can see because we lacked the tools to um, target the support, it was very universal. And more than half of the support went to the top half, more than, uh, more than a quarter went to the top quarter. So it's providing a lot of support for people who essentially didn't need that support. And we, we spent roughly 40 billion on this. We think you could have done something targeted for more like 20. So big savings on offer here if you develop uh, if you develop better policy. Now, as we should be very clear, we, you needed to provide the support. This was a good thing to do. We're not saying don't provide support in downturns. And there was some targeted support here, but we just think you could have done this better if you had have planned ahead. So how do you do that fiscal policy better? Well, there's four things that we suggest here. So one is to make better use of our existing tools. So that means doing public investment in a better pre-planned, long-term thinking sort of way that allows you to accelerate it during recession, to improve your system of automatic stabilizers, make them more powerful. Here we've suggested 
here we have a proposal as part of the inquiry to introduce a system of unemployment insurance that would also help in recessions and could be flex in recessions to develop targeted tools. That's something you could put in place of that EPG universal support. That's basically about data sharing, um, you know, allowing government to really target uh, where, ne where policy needs to, to, to meet um, those facing hardship and to do better risk management. And the combination of all those better policies plus avoiding the lower bound, if I return to our debt sustainability analysis, you basically see in this purple line that we think you can get by with something more like a 1% primary surplus. If you do better, you have smaller ratchets, they're very slightly less frequent, then you can, uh, you can get by by running a 1% surplus. That's still challenging, but it's much more in line with the historical experience we've had. So if you look back to the period where the Bank of England were controlling our economic destiny towards the end of uh, the, the 20th century, you uh, saw three out of five years, we basically ran a 1% primary surplus or larger. So it's much more in line with that, that historical experience and achievable. All right, that's, that's a whistle stop through it. Just to reiterate my, my key points here, we, uh, there's lots going on, but we think we should be thinking about the future and that we can't go down the, the path that we're on. The way ahead looks very worrying and, and comes with risks. And to, to reset macro policy, to really put it on a sustainable trajectory, you need better fiscal tools, you need improved risk management, you need to think about negative rates. These are all relatively easy things, but you need bigger uh, resets, if, particularly if you're in a world of low interest rates and you need to uh, raise the inflation targets. And in any state of the world, you need to think about tighter policy in good times, certainly the most, both of the main parties are currently thinking about. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Great. Thank you, James. Thank you for informing us rather than thank you for the perky news, um, uh, obviously. So th there's a lot in there. Like the, um, at one level, it's just this, the big picture takeaway should be everybody, both main parties say to you, look, the public finances are sustainable because we are aiming to have debt falling, right? That's the headline from both of them. We will do it, whatever it takes, it will happen. And this is just reminding you that saying that is a different thing from doing it because recessions happen. Recessions are one reason why it's harder to do them. It's not the only one. We'll come to some of the other ones in a bit, but recessions happen. They're quite expensive. And given the constraints on macro policy right now, they're having quite a large effect on the public finances. So promising to have debt falling in the happy times doesn't mean debt is falling, actually. It means it's rising because you keep getting clobbered over the head by those recessions. And then the question is, what do you do about it? So, Diane, what would you do about it? Or are you completely relaxed? <laughs> Uh, I may be a little more relaxed in the report, but thank you, James, for a very good report and a comprehensive analysis. Uh, I certainly agree with the premises that we are not in a good shape. Just our starting point is not what we would like. You know, high inflation, uh, higher debt, considerably higher debt, um, low growth, at least since the global financial crisis. So, yes, we have a problem. Uh, I would qualify that a little bit by perhaps saying things could be a lot worse. We are not in a recession. The labor market is very strong. If you look at the real economy, uh, the labor market's very strong. Nominal wages have been going up astronomically, uh, and even real wages now are growing up. 
and our banks are in good shape, despite some pretty severe that's, shocks. Has an excellent bit of perkiness to, so, to get us going uh, in the morning. You know, I, I wouldn't start out quite as, as negative, but that still means we've got to think about the long term and, and how we get there. Uh, I'll just speak about the monetary policy side, and I'll wait and hear what Andy says about the fiscal side. I think the, the key question, as the report points out, is are we now in an abnormal period where interest rates are high in order to get inflation down, but we're going to return to what we've known for the last virtually 15 years of very low rates? Or, you know, that's it's kind of the economist view and indeed the IMF's view uh, globally, not just here. Uh, or there's a market view uh, when you look at what uh, 20, 25 year gilts are trading at. Uh, they're in the 4 to 5% range. Uh, I'm in the market side. Um, I think that we are fighting the last war if we look at negative rates. And if we look at negative real rates, we're actually creating additional problems for us, particularly if, if they're there for quite an, a long period of time. I think the decade since the global financial crisis was the abnormal period, partly because of the shocks. They were pretty abnormal. The pandemic, uh, you know, Russian invasion practically on our shores. Uh, we, we will have more shocks, definitely. But I think they were that period uh, was also unusual uh, because money was so cheap. We made it cheap. Uh, we distorted the, the bond market. Uh, so interest rates, nominal interest rates were very low. Real rates were even lower. Uh, energy was cheap. We had Russian gas. We had fracking in the US. Uh, and labor was cheap in general because we had the demographic situation in China ever since they joined the WTO. We were getting very low cost of manufactured goods, uh, and it was depressing wages, at least uh, low-skill wages in, in our country and others. So all of those things have changed. Money's more expensive, a lot more expensive. Uh, energy is more expensive. I don't think it'll stay at quite the rate that, uh, you know, the 100 plus uh, per barrel rate, but it's more expensive and natural gas is not going to return to where it was. And natural gas is what most of us heat our homes with and so forth. And labor is more expensive. Uh, the demographics have shifted by now in China. The size of their labor force is shrinking, as it is in Germany and Korea and a number of other places. Uh, and some of us, at least a few of us in this room, have retired. You know, we are, we are part of the, the uh, what do they call it, the baby boom generation. And we've boomed, and now we're relaxing. Uh, so Congratulations. <laughs> Thank thanks, you. thanks for rubbing it in. <laughs> I only do these sorts of things because they're fun, you know. Uh, so, you know, we're in a different world. There are lots of upward pushes, structural pushes upward on inflation in this kind of world. Uh, and I think the... Because the, I think the other thing that's happened is that our demand for investment, long-term investment, is much higher. You know, we've got defense spending to worry about again. The, the dividend is over, the peace dividend. Uh, we've got the climate transition, and that's going to cost in the short term, uh, although it'll hopefully have benefits in, in the longer term. Uh, we've, we've got so additional social care, social needs, partly because of older generation. So if one of the main long-term roles of the interest rate is to equate investment demand and savings supply. Uh, and in order to do that, if we're going to have these kinds of investments that, we're, that we need, interest rates have got to be real uh, positive in real terms. So I think the, you know, who knows, um, I, 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 wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put a lot of money on this, but I certainly uh, would say my expectation is that we're going to have positive real rates and upward pressure on inflation uh, in, in this medium term. Now, that um, 
kind of contradicts, uh, or at least uh, poses the other side of the argument against negative real rates. And I think I just mentioned that not only do I think negative real rates are unnecessary, will be unnecessary, I think they'd be counterproductive from a growth point of view. And here I think we have to look at the Japanese experience. I, I suspect most of you have read the, the works of Richard Koo, who developed the idea of a balance sheet recession. Essentially, that when firms and households are, feel they're overburdened with debt and they're having to pay even a low interest rate on it, they don't spend and invest. And so you get the phenomenon of, of zombie firms, firms falling into this situation where they can just cover their debt repayment because interest rates are so low if you're in a negative real situation, um, but the productivity is also very low. And I think that, that is the worry about this kind of um, moving into negative real rates and keeping them negative for, for a long period of time. The, I think the, the other thing that I guess I would would ask James and others who've worked on this report to think about is, for me, the, the risk really of monetary policy, or, or the risk of thinking monetary policy can, can have more scope and have more impact at low rates is not proven at all. You know, the, remember Keynes said it's like pushing on a string when monetary policy has interest rates very low. You're, it, it is fiscal policy that has to take the strain, unfortunately. So, but just it, to think there are big advantages to having low interest rates uh, or interest rates that go below zero, I, th I think is, um, you know, is, is, it's a hope, but I don't think it's borne out by experience. So let's go to raising the inflation target uh, to 3%. Well, as you might expect, having spent quite a few years of my life tromping around the country, pounding in 2% uh, at every, uh, every meeting I spoke to, or 2.5% in the original days, um, I'm very fixated on a 2% target. It's not so much uh, that we need to embed this expectation in households' behavior, in labor unions' behavior, uh, in, uh, in, in company behavior, so that they're not particularly worried about inflation or they have a confidence that we will get back to something like 2%. But it's also because the further you push it and to say, well, maybe it's 3%, uh, the more you unhinge and unlock the wage price spiral. You know, we have, this country has, has suffered from the, the kind of strikes that we've had, particularly in the public sector. That's partly why our growth rate has been so low, because health output, education output, other things have detracted from growth that was happening. It's partly why we're seeing this, uh, this difference between what's happening in the labor market and what's happening in GDP. So it, the wage price spiral is really the thing to worry about, I think, if you actually try to raise people's expectations that we're going to be having 3% interest rates for the long term. Uh, I think I'd also say that we don't need to do it. You know, Even if you think, or I think, that really in the next five years we're likely to have sort of 3-ish percent inflation. Well, the MPC is not an obsessive outfit that pushes harder and harder on the brake if we're fairly close to target. You know, remember, we, the MPC has a, a plus and minus 1% range before they write a letter to the chancellor. Uh, so there's nothing to, present, pr to prevent taking a little longer time horizon uh, to bring inflation down to 2%. But the expectation that it's coming down, that it's not going to be stuck at 3%, I think is actually very important for the, for the economy. And with a little ray of hope, I guess I would, I would give, uh, looking back to ancient history, uh, the period, the 10-year period before the global financial crisis, which 
I think for most economists, was really a, a break in data and a very unusual period we got ourselves into. In that 10 years, from 1997 to 2007, the bank rate averaged 5.1%, not a particularly low number. The CPI, the average inflation rate, was 1.6%. You know, quite nice, actually. The real GDP growth rate per year in that 10-year period was 2.7%. And investment, which is the thing we always worry about if interest rates are too high, investment per annum was 4% real terms. So my hope is that we go back to the future. And uh, I think that that's the problems we have are supply-side problems in this economy. They're not demand-side problems or a macroeconomic framework. Great. Thank you very much indeed, dear. I'm going to count that as gen generally positive about the world so that we can chillax a bit more while putting all the pressure on fiscal policy to deal with it. Indeed. If it turns out that's not the case. Andy, shall we put all the pressure on fiscal policy to deal with it if that is not the case? Um, yeah, interesting question. Um, I thought it was, uh, you know, uh, another interesting report, interesting proposals. It's unusual for me after the decade I've spent at the OBR to actually be free to have views on them. Um, let, me, let me offer one thought on the inflation target before I do fiscal, because the, uh, the last time the Treasury reviewed uh, the monetary policy framework, which is 10 years ago now, which may or may not have been written by me, um, the one question that it really ducked was whether there was merit in raising the inflation target. So I do think there's, there's something to be said for just looking properly at the, at the costs and benefits. The, the thing that always worried me most uh, about doing it is, uh, you know, if you think of it through the lens of uh, interest rates and growth rates, which is all the fiscal debt dynamics really relies on, is if you push the inflation target up 1%, you've got 1% more inflation, 1% higher nominal rates, 1% higher nominal growth, it's all fine, it's all a wash, unless people don't believe that it's a one-time raise of the inflation target. And if the, you know, if the markets think that after this raise, you're going to raise it again, then you get an inflation premium in interest rates. Interest rates go up more than inflation. That premium hits growth. Growth goes up less. And you've just made your fiscal problem harder. So uh, that so credibility... If you're going to do it, do it well. Do it credibly. I mean, you mentioned in the report, you mentioned do it with international backing. I think the most important thing is cross-party backing. If it's one, one government wants to do it and another one wants something different, then it's, it's not going to be credible. Um, on the fiscal policy toolkit, you, uh, you raise a lot of interesting questions. You know, the, the cost of, uh, of many of these mega support packages turned out to be rather less than we initially thought when running the numbers at the OBR. Now, on the energy side, that was just because the energy price came down. Mm -hmm. uh, straightforwardly, we didn't forecast the energy price. We took what the markets were saying, and that, uh, that changed. The furlough scheme was, I think, because it was just more effective in supporting the economy. Um, the thing I think I really would worry about is the expectation that has been set by furlough and by the energy price guarantee, that the government will step in in a really big way when a shock comes along. And that's why the kind of shock-related debt ratchet is so big. Um, but the thing that worried me day to day for the last, certainly, well, maybe not the last 10 years, but certainly the last five years, and definitely in the last year I was at the OPR, is not the shock debt ratchet, it's the normal times debt ratchet. 
Now, you've essentially put up a recommendation that debt should be falling by 1% a year, whereas the fiscal target is for it to be flat or you know, falling by epsilon. Now, that means he means, he means nothing. A tiny bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, your, for your setup to work, and there's a pleasing arithmetic to shock adds 10% every 10 years, so normal times is 1% off every year. For that to work, you need debt falling by 1% a year on average, not 1% in the final year. And the fiscal targets at the moment are you know, very far removed from that kind of normal times debt falling. Do you want to remind everyone what the fiscal target is that the Chancellor... I will do that right now. Because not, <laughs> not everyone is as geeky as you. Doesn't uh, mean it's better or worse, they're just less geeky. Almost no one is as geeky. <laughs> <laughs> so the fiscal target is it places no constraint on what happens to debt in the first four years of a five-year forecast. And then in the fifth year, it must fall as a share of GDP. And that fifth year, it can fall by a wafer-thin margin, and it can fall on the basis of, you know, frankly, quite shaky policy assumptions. And in March, my, uh, my, my last forecast, um, the fiscal headroom, I think, was £6 billion in a £3 trillion economy. And the government got there by pencilling in post-election spending restraint that I think will be, would be incredibly difficult to deliver. And of course, the usual fiscal fiction that fuel duty will rise with inflation each year. Um, it spelt out ambitions in that budget on defence spending and on capital allowances in the corporation tax system that together would cost tens of billions of pounds. Then in the days after the budget, it announced the public sector pay awards. So they were uh, not part of the OBR scrutiny process, at least for the budget. And then in the summer, it announced the NHS workforce plan, a massive spending announcement with no numbers attached, which I, I see the IFS has put at 50 billion a year uh, by the time it's uh, run its course. Now, these risks are, you know, are huge. The, the starting point for getting to James's recommendation, 1% a year, is not zero. It's zero minus or zero plus these various uh, large risks. And uh, you know, these, these risks are, are not so difficult to find in OBR material these days. In, in the old days, you had to read between the lines. Now it's a run of bullet points at the end of chapter four. <laughs> and of course, uh, yourselves and the IFS can add some normative flourish. Um, so the combination of these fiscal targets, these uh, what uh, the TSC called fiscal fictions, and very big policy ambitions that have not been funded means that you have a normal times debt ratchet. So um, last November, after um, an autumn I uh, try not to remember, um, we revised up debt by £420 billion in the final year of the forecast. By March, a few things had improved um, and the fiscal outlook had improved. But rather than banking it all to make a decent dent in that 420. Two thirds of the good news was, was given back in policy giveaways. So debt was only revised that by 67 billion pounds, so about a sixth. And if you look at what happened over the forecast period, instead of debt rising by 7% of GDP, 
it rose by 5.5% of GDP, so 1% a year on average. So when the bad news feeds through to debt, and the good news is used to, to pay for policy ambitions, uh, you get this normal times debt ratchet. And that's much more painful at 5% interest rates than at 2% interest rates. And a, one, a final thought is, you know, the report steers clear of uh, climate change, but it also raises big questions for fiscal targets, because, you know, to, to oversimplify a lot, you have climate shocks will say you need to run tighter policy uh, to be able to pay for them. You know, essentially, it might not be once 10%, once a decade, it's going to be more. Um, but the need to invest in emissions reduction says you've got to run looser policy because you've just got to invest a lot now uh, for, the, for the future gain. So all in all, I think it adds up to a, a post-election fiscal challenge that is uh, really quite daunting. Great. And that is why Andy has gone to do a new job. Very good. <laughs> Thank you very much, Andy. The, um, uh, right, that was you know even more depressing than James, um, uh, which is saying something. Right, I thought we should do let's do let's do the problem first of all, or how big a problem there, there is, and then let's come to like what potential answers are because they're both there's a dangerous they get mixed up. And the prior question to whether you want to do anything on the policy answer side is how big the problem is because some of the answers are hard. Right, it's not like, it's not the answers are not like well, whether or not there's a problem, we can just flick the switch and it's kind of fine. They're like, most of them are reasonably hard. So people, there's a reason why people haven't done them. So you've got to think there's a big problem before you probably come to the answers. So let's do, and you can hear a bit of that in the tension, whereas Andy's basically politely and in more technocratic speak saying we are fiscally stuffed and Leanne is more relaxed on the monetary policy side. So it's important, and those two things interact in important ways, which I think is the really important thing to think through, which is basically about what James's report is giving us so let's just do on the on the problem side there are really there's two problems going on one is and this is quite timely actually but one is the old problem which is fiscal sustainability right are the public finances sustainable over the medium term and then does that give you the space to do what you want to do in recessions and then the ability to fund your public services in good times without it costing you loads of money right the um, and the reason that's reasonably timely is because obviously one thing that's been triggered by the combination of a shorter term high rates phase plus a lot of political chaos in, in America right now is question marks about sovereign sustainability. Can governments do what they would need to do to make sure their public finances are stable? That's what's underpinning the, that's what's underpinning the panic in the US right now, along with markets being totally unmoored about what long-term interest rates look like for fair, fair enough reasons, um, given that we don't know. Um, uh, but so that's what's putting the question marks back. That's what last autumn was also about to some degree. The, um, so we've got the normal problem. We've got people getting more anxious about the normal problem for a mixture of politics and substance um, reasons. And then that is coming together with the aspect to it that James is highlighting, which is if a second problem also happens, the constraint on monetary policy's ability to support the economy in bad times, there might be even more pressure on fiscal policy and you add that to the existing problem, what he calls the first, the recession ratchet, and Andy's adding a second ratchet to it, which is like politics being a bit spendthrift. They um, put them together and you get a big problem. They, um, now, the argument of the report is, even if the second bit, the constraint on monetary policy, isn't, isn't binding, because it turns out we're in a higher rates world, happy days on the monetary policy side, you've got a fiscal problem. So worry about the fiscal problem anyway. But it's saying, if you've also got the monetary problem, you've got a very big fiscal problem, 
and it's so big that you should think hard about doing policy answers which are not like relaxing like a high inflation target people are vaguely nodding did that make sense yes but that, you're always enthusiastic uh, <laughs> right so let's talk about the problem a bit so let's do on the let's do the monetary policy constraints we're going to come to there is a fiscal problem anyway but is there or is there not a monetary um, problem and there's one question that's coming online which is a good starter for 10 for anyone that's been paying attention for the last um, 15 years so here it is which is the prior discussion between you two is, are we in a market's world? Higher rates forever now, so don't worry too much about hitting the zero lower bound all the time. Or are the economists right? Uh, and they wrote all their papers before the recent bout, and they're sticking to their position, which is rates are going back to, uh, to very low levels after this particular inflation bout. And so we are going to hit the zero lower bound all the time. One counter that over the last 15 years is, well, even if that happens, we just keep doing QE like we have, which is our first question. Is there a, is there, why didn't you, James, just say that, you know, just doing lots more QE is the way out of a constrained monetary policy? We don't need to worry about all your crazy ideas. So why don't you, the report does cover this. So why can't QE do the work? Well, I, I think, you know, we, we've talked about this before. So QE... Um, was a big thing in, in response to the financial crisis is the way uh, central banks generally tried to deal with the fact they couldn't do anything short-term interest rates. And what they do is they go out and buy a lot of government debt, they try and push down long-term interest rates instead of short-term interest rates. Now, the problem with that is you only really push down long-term interest rates if you have some space to push down long-term long interest rates. And where central banks seem to have got to, and we definitely have sympathy for this, is that only really happens when there's a kind of dysfunctional financial market situation. So guilt yields are rising out of control, then QE can be quite powerful, but it can't be relied upon, um, I think is now a sort of fairly clear consensus to fill in for short term interest rates. And I, I think we have said, you know, that, that you might want to do uh, more QE as part of a, of, of a response in, in the past. But um, the key point is you need to think about something else at the same time. Dan, do you want to come in on QE yeah, I, I was, enthusiasm? I was happy that your report did not recommend doing more QE or using it as the primary tool <clears throat> of monetary policy. I think there are two really big disadvantages in QE. Remember, it works through the wealth channel, and it works. People who have financial assets gain fantastically with QE. Uh, it bids up the price of financial assets. That is not really conducive to a, uh, an equal society uh, and generates all kinds of political issues, and I think re re for, for good reason. The other reason, completely different from that, that QE is dangerous, is that if you need to have a big uh, chunk of QE, the only way you can really do that is through uh, short-term bond um, purchases. And short-term bond purchases, you have to, of course, roll them over in the future. You do have to pay them off when the time comes. And so it shortens the average duration of our debt. And now we're paying them off with high interest rates, you know, whereas we did it when low interest rates were low. So it's counterproductive in a, in a, in a fiscal sense or a debt management sense, put it that way. Because, and that's because, that's because it increases the volatility of your government debt interest bill, basically, to rate changes. Yeah, it, and, and it, definitely, and it definitely pushes right it into short-term short -term rates. What's your QE enthusiasm? Well, I, mean, I, I just think that fiscal angle gets very 
prominent when QE is as large as it got. So one, once the bank was holding 800, 900 billion pounds worth of gilts, then raised the bank rate to 5%, that is plain and simple, raising yep. the interest rate on your government debt to 5%. One thing that's one lesson I would take away from the last fifteen years that the QE, QE experience is one example of, but you still see it now with discussions of a higher inflation target. And the rest is, people are desperate to pretend that the decisions you make about the, the choices you make about the nature of your monetary policy framework are being taken totally independently of their impact on the fiscal uh, challenge. So, like, if you're if you're in the Bank of England, right, reading this report now, obviously, I hope you say this is really interesting and important <laughs> stuff. Uh, but one thing you say is, oh no, this is really scary because it implies thinking about what the monetary policy framework should be, taking into account that there are implications for sustainability of fiscal policy, right? So you start getting scared about that framing because you're like, oh, that means don't, don't admit don't admit to the punters that there's a relationship here because then they could maybe start thinking we're not as independent and then that and then the world collapses because that's the thing. The problem you've got is that they are deeply, deeply <laughs> interrelated. QE is like the most recent example of that. But whether or not we regularly hit the zero lower bound is another really, really big like area that happens. So well, how I, do we deal with that? Well, I think it is very important to make sure that in fact and in perception, monetary policy is made independently of the political cycle and of the government. How, having said that, I think that in this country, at least, we are protected because it's the Treasury who has to approve the QE. They, they, they bear the risk uh, of what's going to happen. And so there is a link, but only at that stage. And as I understand it, at least, there isn't a link between which bonds you're, you're, um, you're selling and, or buying and which bonds the government might might think you should be yep. actually with the with the size of our QE there there was no alternative it, it's only the short term market that could absorb that because there's not enough there's not enough liquidity yeah. in longer term exactly the um, right okay so QE does not get us off the uh, hook so then then the basically how constrained are your monetary policy comes down to what do you think is the long term path of uh, underlying rates not the, not the policy rates the Bank of England setting but like what is the level of rates that we're likely to be settling at when we're in normal times which it would be nice to have at um, some point now as you, as you said you're with the markets rather than the disgusting economists who are <laughs> still think <laughs> well, we're I'm, I'm with the markets but not necessarily with the same uh, uh, analysis Certainty. that the markets okay, sure, put in. Sure. Uh, I'm but not then, sure if they're worried about geopolitical risks and building, rebuilding supply chains. And, you know, yeah, that's I less their thing. Um, but, so, but, one, like, but let's, because we're not going to resolve the, are the economists right or are the markets right today? We're going li to live through that and find out the answer. But, one, but policymakers have to make decisions given that uncertainty. Like not, there is not some certainty available to them about what the level of rates is going to be in the medium term. The, um, so in that world, shouldn't we at least plan for both worlds existing rather than being like, okay, we think the, you know, our, our most likely outcome is, okay, there'll be 5% rates and so I'll be able to do 5% loosening when I need to. Um, but given that we can't be sure that's the case, should we plan for other worlds existing? What do you think? Well, I think it's okay to model them. Uh, but plan, I'm not so sure. Otherwise, he's in big I'm trouble. I'm not so sure because, uh, <laughs> for one thing, the, the policy decision month by month is not made thinking about 10-year situations. Sure. So we don't, they don't need to plan or to uh, put their marker down on what rates are going to be in 2030. Uh, but also, I, I think I started to make the case, at least, that I think it actually is pretty dangerous if you hold rates at a negative real rate for too long. That is when you get the zombie firm problem. 
Uh, yeah, but in terms of planning for the framework, so yeah, definitely ignore the. This has got nothing to do with what the Bank of England does now. Right. But in terms of thinking about, have we got the right framework for twenty years? Should people be doing that thinking, which we ha we, ha we haven't, we definitely haven't well, been doing for the last fifteen. I think long-term forecasting, as you know better than I do, is a very tricky thing. You know, the curves are always nice and smooth. Um, but actually, you know, if we announced a 3% inflation target, you know, we are, the headlines would say, raising inflation by 50%. You know, yes, first yes, of yes. all, the stats and the media yeah. always get the, you know, exaggerate the issue. And it would not be a, a nice, gentle 1% decline in sterling over time. It would be a shock because markets do try to look ahead. Yeah, um, so big risk. Um, the one question that's come in that a few people have raised, which is basically, where did the... 2% come from originally. So why did 2% get chosen across all advanced economies, as you say, with some definitional questions about which mm. measure. But the, um, so where does the 2% come from, basically, was, is the question being asked. Is it early 1930s New Zealand? 1930s sounds old. No, I don't think that's right. <laughs> no, um, 80s. 80s. 1980s New Zealand makes more sense than 1930s, yeah. but you know, maybe I missed something. Um, that, uh, there's mainly, New Zealand was mainly doing lots of sheep in the 1930s that they were selling to us before. Mm. Uh, anyway. Yeah, I think New Zealand was the first one to actually give a, get a number on it. And I think, if I remember rightly, they actually tied the salary of their central bank governor to hitting 2%. <laughs> uh, Which is just And me. then, you know, then remember uh, the ECB used to say, uh, under but close to 2%. They had this kind of one-tailed target, and they eventually got rid of that as well. So I think, it's, I think the idea was zero, that is absolute price stability, is dangerous. Um, it's hard to depress wages when you need to. Uh, you need to have some flexibility with inflation in there because of rigidity of nominal costs and prices. But uh, you don't want too much. And so 2% was kind of a trial. And then as one country after another said, yeah, that's OK. The US didn't have a target initially, and then Bernanke put it in. Um, and, I, and I would just say on fiscal targets, uh, you know, what has amazed me about living in this country is people actually pay some attention, at least, to our <laughs> fiscal framework. The US has no fiscal framework. Too, too much, uh, maybe? Uh, well, I don't know. I think it's a good discipline. You know, and you need people like Andy around to <laughs> challenge what we have to, what, you know, how unrealistic it is. The EU has has sort of a fiscal framework, but I think it's a 60% debt to GDP limit, which every country, even Germany, uh, has has breached. So the, a fiscal framework is a is a myth, but I think it's an important myth, and it is important to look forward because these things, uh, you know, they don't disappear overnight when you've got a deficit like this. Well, let's 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 do some questions then on the how big is the fiscal problem. So there's two questions that come in about like maybe it's all okay. And we should all just perk up a bit, okay? So one is a really short term, it's all okay, which is basically everyone is reading the news stories about higher inflation that means that the, um, all the freezes in the, in the tax system are actually bringing in loads more money, about 40 billion pounds worth um, of permanent tax rises from the changes in the income taxes, national insurance and income tax. So someone's asking, does that now mean the HMT has got loads of space because of this fiscal drag bonanza? Andy, I know you're not doing the forecast this time, but like, does this mean it's all happy days? Thankfully. Um, so, so I think it's, it's definitely true. So inflation can be very painful for the public finances when it comes from abroad, so like an energy price shock, mm -hmm. and inflation can be quite beneficial for the public finances when it comes domestically through wages. 
and inflation can be very be beneficial for the public finances when that happens alongside frozen income tax thresholds. So that's why you know, income tax is rolling in. Um, uh, but whether it, whether it gives space, I think comes back to what I was saying about whether there's a normal times debt ratchet. It, there is clearly good news in the short term in the fiscal numbers and I think in the kind of nominal economy numbers. Um, the question for the OBR will be, is that good news mostly kind of backward looking? Does it mean that the economy is further above trend and therefore you've got less scope for growth in the future? They'll, you know, they'll be doing all of that at the moment and I'm thrilled not to be. Um, but Very collegial if, of you to your ex-colleagues. <laughs> should be like um, sympathetic to them, not like happy days for me. They, they are, they're doing round two today according to the okay. timetable online, so they won't be watching. Um, <laughs> the, the question is, if, if they do come to the answer that this is going to medium-term fiscal improvement and it's used, that just means, you know, debt could have been like rising less quickly or yeah, okay. you know falling more quickly at the horizon and won't be because the normal times debt ratchet works and i think well you know that that situation the more that continues the less likely it is that normal times gives you enough space to deal with shocks plus we have had some other news so yes we know that the we know that yes we know <laughs> that, that higher inflation means that we are getting the treasury is getting more money from its freezes but we also know that markets are expecting interest rates to stay significantly higher for longer. Very much. One percent, one percent on long-term rates is what fifteen billion about extra 15, borrowing. Yeah. About fifteen billion extra borrowing five years out. So that more or less wipes out your your fiscal drag bonanza anyway. Life's complicated, and so are fiscal forecasts. Uh, right then, another big picture question for you, Andy, which is slightly dangerously kind of philosophy level, but you definitely get a lot of this because people have spent the last fifteen years saying. Uh, debt doesn't matter. Look, this higher debt levels, they're attached. They're also associated with lower debt interest costs because interest rates were coming down consistently over that phase. They, um, so maybe we just shouldn't care so much about public sector debt is the question that is basically being asked. There's two versions of this question. One is, theoretically, should we care about high public sector debt? Another one is the same question, but with the word Japan put in it, basically, which is, look, Japan was fine. They've managed it forever. Why are you also like focused on having, you know, a particular level of public sector debt? Who cares? Why do we care? Andy, why do you care? Why do you get up in bed in the morning? Well, um, so there's a there's a sense that the government really cares about the level of public debt, and I see no sign of that at all. The fiscal target is to have debt falling from whatever number it is in year four to a slightly lower number in year five. And the level doesn't feature in the debate. Um, it used to under Gordon Brown, and you know the the uh, that Treasury book that I'm sure you were involved in, known as the Silver Book. Of that's, before why, my, that's before my time. I'm, I'm not. The, I'm not responsible for that bit of hubris. Other bits of hubris. Exactly. Maybe. So a very a very hubristic book, but it did have one page in it that said, if you target debt at 40% of GDP and you're hit by a really big shock, debt might rise to 80% of GDP, and that's still okay. You can still function, and basically, it wasn't a very techie argument, was it? <laughs> it was basically, well, exactly. if it doubles, you'll be all right. <laughs> exactly, and and that is, I think, the right way of thinking about public debt. There is no right answer to what the level is. The le the the limit on your debt is not a number; it's a function of lots of things. And you know what 
what we've seen in crises is that if you step in with a massive amount of fiscal support to help the economy, you know, those who are lending you money will see it as the right thing to do and they'll lend you the money. And you have space, you have fiscal space and public debt can rise. If you do something that you kind of premise with, I do not believe evidence, I believe something else, the market will punish you and you do not have space to do that. So it, the limit on debt is a, is, is a function of things. All I, would, all I think at the moment is, you know, we have not cared about the level of debt for a long time because after the financial crisis, the Treasury just wanted to turn things around, which was perfectly reasonable, but we still have a debt target that is, let's turn things around. And that's kind of past dependency, I think. At high interest rates, the level of debt matters more. So no one knows the right number, there isn't a right number, but higher is, gives you less space to do policy, whatever it is, medium term, shock absorbing. Japan? Japan is an unusual place that runs a very large current account surplus. It owes almost all its government debt to itself. Yeah. Uh, Tell people why that helps. Um, or helps, because the euphemistic. Helps a bit. It helps a bit, I think, because the investment community in Japan, like a lot of the debt is held by households as post office savings accounts. They are not going to change their mind and shift into US treasuries. So the interest rate is you know, low because the demand is almost captive. And, that and because it's all domestic in the end, if push comes to shove, the government, it can basically financially repress its way through that trauma. Again, no one is going to say that, but like in the end, how does Japan blow up? It only blows up if like at some point all the youth who hold all this get pissed off enough with that world to start doing something about it, and they're not going to. So, well, it's financial repression right now. This is already financial repression, okay. and, and people are at some it for point that reason, you know, whereas twenty-five percent of our debt is held by foreigners who are looking at the harder pound, to repress you know, the dollar, the euro, uh, the renminbi, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, t I totally agree with Andy that, that the conditions matter. But one of those conditions for whether you um, face a sort of fiscal risk, whether you, you, know, you see that loss in markets actually lending to you, is the level of debt. So other things matter. But I, I think you know, when you're, you're thinking about, well, maybe the future is all, is all fine. Let's just wait and see what happens. The problem is, if you're on an unsustainable trajectory, and we're seeing this arguably to some degree in financial markets right now with longer term interest rates rising, it creates, it adds to the risk because you know, your, the risk is associated with the, fundamentally with the level of debt. And that puts the onus on you having a plan to bring that under mm. control. There's no plan in the US, there's no plan in the UK. And I would argue that explains some of the episodes that we've had, um, not entirely the Liz Truss mini budget experience. There might have been some bad policy in there, some, some people might argue, but that definitely increases the risk of having a really big reaction to, to that sort of thing. Very good. Now, I think we get on higher rates, and there's one thing we just need to like help people think through a bit, and it comes through a bit in this question, which is how bad is a long-term 5% interest rate? This then says for the government. But I think there's a tension here, which is, so everyone right now is looking at what markets are doing and saying, so medium-term rates and long-term rates heading to 5% from near zero forever and saying, that's a bit awkward. We're now going to have to pay a higher debt interest bill. 
the state is going to have to pay a high dirge bill, different countries at different paces, depending on their rollover timelines. Um, but in another neck of the woods, we're saying, well, if, if interest rates are higher than they were over the last 10 years, and you're saying a mixture of they may, should, may well be and probably should be, I think it sounds like, they're, it's desirable that they are. Um, and there's a tension there, which is those higher rates in the medium term give us more scope for monetary policy to do work, but do mean a higher debt interest bill in nominal terms. So one thing we didn't say already clearly, but in the paper, the way we deal with that is to say, yes, in the short term, if you have higher interest rates for a given level of growth, that's just like unequivocally bad for your public finances. It's just costing you more money. In the medium term, levels of growth and levels of interest rates tend to move together. Not, uh, not perfectly. They definitely move over, side each other, over long periods, over like decades. And so if you're in a higher rate world, you're hoping you're also in a higher growth world. The, um, if you're not, if you're just in a higher rates world forever and you're not in a higher growth world, well, then the public finances are completely stuffed. Like all of James's stuff is way more optimistic than that. It all assumes if you do get higher rates, you also get higher growth. If you're in the world that Deanne is setting out, which I think is just, it was just, you know, the world's changed a bit, higher demand for investment. We've got higher interest rates, but we haven't got higher growth. Aren't we completely stuffed? Shouldn't you actually be the most depressed? No, I don't think so. I think the, uh, I think what we're in right now is a disruptive transition you know, from the old world that I talked about, with yeah. cheap money, cheap energy, cheap labor, to a different world. Uh, and, it's, and, it, and it's been a kind of a quick transition because inflation hit us yeah. in other countries much quicker than we realized or than they realized uh, at the time. So, you know, this is, it, it's difficult right now because it is transition. Um, but I think that there are reasons to think that as we get out of this, as we get inflation back down, people are very nervous, are very annoyed about inflation. We all are. Uh, we've got to get through this transition, uh, and it may take us longer than we would like to get down to something like 2%, but, you know, we are going in the right direction, but slowly. Uh, and the, uh, it takes time for businesses and households to adapt to that. So I don't consider where we are now to be, uh, you know, some kind of undesirable equilibrium that we're likely to stick in. So do you think in your high rates, well, we will, we will get the higher growth that the longer-term world tells us? I think we'll get a, a little higher, a little higher, okay. you know, somewhere between, between, between one and two percent real. Okay, right. Let's let's use that as our pivot into answers and to start to wrap up, which is basically, could growth just sort it all out? Which I think, to some degree, based like what is the revealed actual policy of the government? So you're Andy's, Andy's gently nudging them on, pretending debt's falling, but basically not really. The, um, which I think is basically right. Um, so in, given that they do believe it would be better to have a lower level of debt, both main parties, not an actual level, but lower than it is today, what's their actual revealed policy? And it, to some degree, it's hoping something turns up and something could be higher growth. So shouldn't, you know, yes, it's been a disastrous 15 years for low growth. That's what's made some of these debt dynamics so painful, even though we've had low rates. They're really low rates. But so, and low growth, and the debt dynamics have been a nightmare, plus the crises, plus your second ratchet. Um, but maybe growth will just turn up, and then we can all chill a bit. Andy, get you a bit perkier? <laughs> um, you know, any, anything's possible. Um, I, think, uh, I think, I mean, you can see the focus of both main parties on growth. Like, you know, yeah. the, last, the last budget I was involved in involved uh, the 
the Treasury and the, the Chancellor himself looking incredibly closely at a very long list of policies to find the ones that had the greatest bang for the buck in growth terms, uh, coming up with the, the childcare employment yep. uh, driving measure, uh, the capital allowances measure. Um, I think, I just feel it's unlikely that it's just going to turn up. I think the, the headwinds, the supply side headwinds are are still pretty real. But if it did, if it, how much difference would it make? If it did, I mean, as, as you've already said, the, what really matters for the public finances is how growth relate, compares to interest rates. So if you get higher growth uh, without necessarily feeding one for one through to higher interest rates, then you know the dynamics work in your favor. Um, the thing that we looked at the OBR a few years ago when um, Blanchard was saying that debt doesn't matter because R minus G, this differential will always be... People aren't writing those books anymore. No, they're those, those books, they, they were like a two-year... Uh, unfortunately, time for right at the end of the low interest rates era. The, the thing we looked at was you just had to have this differential be enormous to be able to pay for things like the rising cost of healthcare. And after you, after you see the NHS workforce plan, which basically is draws the line that we've always assumed in the OBR uh, long-term projections of how rapidly health spending keeps rising as a share of GDP. Like growth versus interest rates, it can help you, but it can't answer the question. Yeah, the, um, that is definitely fair. James, do you wanna come in on your growth perkiness? Well, I, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear from the numbers Deanne gave earlier. We, we could do better on growth, so we, we very much did before before the financial crisis. Obviously, the things have changed. You'll hear uh, an economy twenty thirty inquiry final report fourth of December. People keep that in your James, in very mind good, where, very good. James. Where you know we we can combine um, our strategy for growth in a much much more effective, coherent way. On top of that. As, as we've been talking about, we've been hit by these two colossal crises over the, the past 15 years or so. It, I don't think it's that optimistic to say maybe the future won't be quite as bad as that in terms of holding growth down. So I, I, I would be optimistic. We can, um, we can get faster growth. It would be game changing for this. Um, but you know, the, there's a risk that we come across um, in this paper as saying, higher interest rates are actually better for the public finances. As you were saying, that's a short-term a short term thing. And as Andy has made very clear, it's that growth interest differential that yeah. we really need to focus on. But, but on let here. me ask Andy a question. Do, do you think it is the supply side that this economy needs to focus on to get higher growth? Yes, I think so. I, I think if you, you know, I think you could make the case in like the early part of the 2010s that macro policy was was tight because monetary policy could not offset the you know slow steady year by year by year by year tightening of fiscal policy but since um you know roughly the mid 2010s uh, you can see a number of supply side issues you know public investment is not particularly high private investment is being held back by you know, uncertainty in particular um, and then, you know, write your list of things that are, you know, not quite helping on productivity. You know, the thing, the thing that we used to look at the OBR, 
basically the OBR in my early era was very skeptical of government policy on supply side. Uh, we almost felt like the institution had been set up to say, you know, we'll wait and see what happens. We won't put it in the numbers. Um, nowadays, you know, it is, the OBR is much more open to, you know, taking on board the positive effects of supply side policies. The thing that used to really worry me about that is that the government does things all the time for all sorts of reasons that are negative for the supply side of the economy because of... Give us your favourite example. My, my favourite example was a very, uh, very recent one while we were looking through relatively small supply side gains of employment measures. I also, in my job as signing off the fiscal costs of, of measures, signed off a very, very tiny tax cost of a scheme that DEFRA runs to um, subsidise early retirement of farmers. And it was, you know, this, this, is, this is a reduction in labour supply. Tiny, but it is. And that's why, I mean, you know, the government does things... How much for, do I get if I'm a farmer and I want to retire? <laughs> do they sign off forecast at early retirement for economic policy tax? Uh, we all need to get, we need to get some of I this. don't remember all the details. Okay, fine, all right. I'm going to go look up the farmer retirement tax credit. Uh, I didn't realise there was one, but, you know, it turns out the world's always weird and you thought, right, I'm going to wrap us up then with uh, last thoughts from each of you on a poll that we're going to do online while people can vote as to end it up, which is where are we going to end up, basically? So will, where's, will the UK's debt-to-GDP ratio which despite some of the questions we're saying does matter, at least its trajectory matters, its plausible trajectory matters. Is it going to continue to ratchet up? James gave you one reason it might ratchet up. Have you met recessions? Andy's added another one. Have you met politicians? Uh, is it going to keep ratcheting up? Yes, because we'll basically carry on doing what we're doing now. Uh, yes, because really bad things will keep happening. Like, so let's let's do that as really bad things, i.e. like the last 15 years. So like big, big crises rather than just James's forecast of like pretty bad crises. Um, uh, no, because we're going to reset our fiscal framework to take pressure off the fiscal authority and do fiscal policy better. Or no, we're just going to get lucky. So let's go through the panel. You can give us your closing thoughts at the same time. So James, what's going to happen? And give us your... Any other wider well, closing well, thoughts? Well, I feel like I have to talk my own book here. So I, I, I think people w w should actually address this. And to Deanne's point earlier about, you know, this is difficult, comes with risks, both Deanne and Andy have catastrophized about what happens in a, a higher um, a higher inflation target world. The problem is we're in a, a world that doesn't work at the moment. We're in a unsustainable period. And that is popping up with all these QE risks, these jumps in in yields, all these risks, and, and that will continue as long as we don't have a plan to put ourselves on a sustainable footing. So I think we will have to grasp it, and I think we will, and um, I'm very positive and perky about it. Very, sound, <laughs> you don't sound very perky. That is the basic, but that, I think that is a really good summary of what the papers are actually saying, which is, you don't know what the future looks like, but you, and, and doing and making changes to your framework is not easy, but the status quo has got some very, very big risks. And either you're just accepting those risks and saying, well, let's just keep going and hope something turns up, or you're making some changes which are in themselves um, difficult. That's a good summary. Right, Dan, where are you voting for? Yes, no, and what's your motivation? I'm, uh, yes on the top. You're yes, we're just going to we'll plow it, ahead. And we'll see what crossed. happens. Life is too uncertain. Uh, we're in a transition period. Yes, it's not a sustainable point. That's because it's a transition. And... Uh, yeah, let's, uh, we'll like roll let's, ahead. let's deal with it when it comes. Okay, very good. The, um, Andy? 
Um, I mean, my my main thought is that it, this is a massive like. Do not start from here. Is the best. Andy, <laughs> Andy, Andy. Like, yeah. it's going in the not constructive thought <laughs> bucket. And it, and it uh, well, it leads you to uh, you know a bit of the yeses for for some period until something pushes you into the no. Yeah. So like history says, basically, in uh, in some ideal worlds, really good politicians. Um, do face up to some of these longer term risks and deal with them before they go wrong. History does say basically in the main, people deal with the problems when they blow up in their face, um, which is a bit of a depressing uh, thought, but that's not my thought, that is the punter's thoughts. So if we bring up the results, um, they basically say, uh, we're gonna keep ratcheting and then, um, because basically we can't do anything and uh, bad things will happen. Wow. So it turns out you lot watching are even more pessimistic than James, who did try to perk us all up. Then, um, yeah, I mean, we, that may be what happens. That all I would say is that is quite. The dangers are not a large. I think it's really one thing to spell out is what goes wrong in that world is either like you don't need the like huge fiscal crisis where you can't actually borrow, like being the problem. You just end up with governments that basically don't support the economy when a downturn happens at all because they feel really constrained, and you end up with deeper recessions, and those tend to be worse for people on low. Um, income. So the price of that, which I think is perfectly plausible outcome, you've just made the case for that, is really high. Basically, you end up doing lots of other suboptimal policy because you weren't prepared to sort this problem out. So maybe that's what the punters think. But those of you who are policymakers watching, pull your fingers out and sort it out before something bad happens. And on that perky note, can we all thank our panel for their thoughts today? Thank you all for coming. And as James said, 4th of December, final report of the Economy 2030 inquiry. It is long, but it is good. See you there. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.